We are It's More Than Just a Chant. We are inspirational creators, difference makers, world changers, and we are one community. Join alums Jared and Ross as they uncover stories of Penn Staters and their unique professional and personal journeys. We are Penn State, and this is Lion Legacy. episode 16 of lion legacy and ross you know when we set out to create lion legacy i I gotta admit i don't think we had an exact plan in place other than good storytelling and diversity and that's diversity of people diversity of careers diversity of penn state experiences and i'd like to think and hopefully we're not being biased but I think we've done a solid job thus far with our guest list. When you look across the majors and the different careers and the different periods that they've graduated. And I think this week's guest is no different in the storytelling aspect, but actually comes with a bit of a different angle on his Penn State experience and career. So we we spoke with Brian Cuban. If the name sounds familiar, he is indeed the brother of Mark Cuban, the owner of NBA's Dallas Mavericks, as well as a, a well-known shark on the Shark Tank. So Brian is a battler in the true sense of the word. He has overcome a number of addictions throughout his life, which he details for us in our conversation. But what Jared was alluding to is that Brian's experience at Penn State was not easy. He shared the challenges with us that he was going through while he was a student that were not always positive, and we appreciate his honesty in that regard. There was no negative or ill will towards the university. Yeah, I think it, you know, one, it's a sign of his healing and the progress that he's made in his life, and kudos to him, certainly. But then I'd also say kudos for actually sharing that with others. I think there's a lot of people that have gone through those types of addictions and experiences and they hide them. They put them in in the closet and they shut the door. And I don't blame those people either, but Brian has really transformed in that now it's his mission to talk about it and hopefully help other people who you know, are currently going through something similar or maybe tempted to go through something similar and it's the aspect of him talking that is going to help other people in life. And I think Brian has certainly done a lot and will continue to do a lot for people who are battling mental health issues or addictions and just, you know, having these conversations also normalize it. So we appreciate him coming on and, and sharing his journey with us. It's really powerful. And it's a conversation that I think everyone will will gain a lot out of moving forward. Well said. I I was certainly struck by the clarity with which Brian looks back on a very, very difficult period of time in his life and what he did to battle through it. It's a really uh, great episode. Again, like Jared mentioned, a bit different than the norm, but we think you'll appreciate the openness and honesty and the heaviness a little bit of, of the conversation with Brian. And with that, enjoy the episode with Brian Cuban. All right. Let's welcome Brian Cuban, 1983 Penn State graduate, majoring in administration of justice. After Penn State, Brian went on to get his JD at University of Pittsburgh. We'll need to get into that a little bit later and, and question that decision, Brian. Well, you have to remember back, uh, back then, uh, Penn State didn't have a law school. Ah, okay. There you go. Fair point. 
All right. Good point there. Good point. But beyond being a lawyer, Brian is a warrior. As a freshman at Penn State, he developed anorexia. By 19, he was bulimic. At 20, an alcoholic. 27, cocaine addict. 30, steroid addict. At 44, suicidal and saved by his two brothers. Add on two trips to a psychiatric facility. We are delighted that he joins us today on Lion Legacy at 60 years old and 14 years sober. Brian, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me on, guys. I'm excited to talk a little Penn State. I don't get to do that that often. There you go. We're excited as well. And before we get started, I do want to give a shout out to a mutual friend, Ben Sterner of the Leverage Agency, for introducing us. Always good when uh, people introduce Penn Staters to other Penn Staters. Awesome. So after all that I mentioned earlier, most people wouldn't be even alive today. Truly a major feat that you are. And on top of that, sober. But you're actually telling your story, not only to us, but to groups around the country. You're a best-selling author of two books. Most people actually would probably hide behind the quote-unquote bad things, but you've actually embraced it and are sharing your story. Why? Because I think there are lessons to be taken from my story. When I tell my story publicly, whether it's at a conference, at a law firm, or whatever, wherever, people reach out to me. And the best way to break stigma around addiction and eating disorders is through the power of storytelling. And so I have embraced that. And early on, a lot of it was as as much helping me as helping anyone else. So when I tell my story, it helps me recover a little bit more. It helps me do a little bit better in my recovery. And at the same time, hopefully I'm connecting with some aspect of someone else's life. Absolutely. Brian, you have a quote prominently displayed on your website that reads, trauma and shame are the gatekeepers to happiness. What do you mean by this? I'm a big believer in a lot of what Brene Brown says, or people don't know about her. She talks a lot about shame. And I believe that when people are dealing with mental health issues, whether it's addiction, depression, whatever it is, a lot of times, not all the time, because cause is different than correlation, there are underlying threads of shame and trauma that haven't been dealt with. And those tend to can drive adverse childhood experiences Those things drive trauma, and trauma has a high correlation to mental health issues. So for me personally, I dealing with my underlying trauma in childhood, I was severely bullied, a lot of stuff went on, has helped me with my mental health recovery. So I believe that there is a linchpin there. So let's actually, we're going to dive into that a little deeper. You mentioned bullying. Was there other certain events or moments throughout your younger years that ultimately triggered those addictions? I was very shy. I went. I, I grew up in Pittsburgh, a suburb of Mount Lebanon. I was heavy kid, and I was bullied mercilessly by by some kids. Fat shamed, fat taunted. I was physically assaulted. There was a lot of fat shaming in my house. My mom, who was fat shamed and had a very difficult relationship with her mother, it kind of runs downhill. And to make it clear, I do not blame my mom for the things I went through. Parents do not cause eating disorders. Parents do not cause addiction. As I said, there is a difference between cause and correlation. A lot of that really played a role and formed the core of shame that I embraced as who I was. And for many, many years because of that, anytime I looked in the mirror, I absolutely hated what I saw and who I saw. And I took that right into Penn State. 
got it. I guess the issues that you were dealing with from your, I guess, late teens through your late twenties and onward, was it like the, the accumulation of addictions? Like how does one necessarily pile onto another or lead to another? When we talk about, I, I talk about it in terms of snapshots. Every, mm-hmm. we are all accumu- a, a, an accumulation of snapshots of our lives. And around every snapshot is a story. And the snapshots build up and they're stuck on top of each other. And so when you see a friend or a classmate or whatever who's struggling, all you're seeing is the accumulation of those snapshots. So my first snapshot was early on, obviously, the difficult relationship with my mother. The second snapshot was, I would call the physical assault, when these kids uh, physically assaulted me and tore my uh, shiny gold bell-bottom disco pants that my brother Mark had given me. And stripped me down in my Fruit of the Loom tidy whities It was right around then that I remember starting to look, seeing my reflection and seeing just this monster who was never going to be loved, never going to have a date, never go to the prom. He wasn't loved by his mother who loved him dearly, but she was struggling with her own mental health issues as well. And the next snapshot would, would have been at Penn State. When I went on to Penn State, I graduated high school and I went on to Penn State. My first year was at the Barron campus out in uh, Erie, Wesleyville. And it's funny, you. this snapshot was uh, my dad had driven me up and it was uh, the first day, fall orientation. I was in a dorm with three other kids. I remember it was Niagara Hall. And I'm looking out the window and it's this rectangular square window looking right out into the parking lot of Niagara Hall. Beautiful fall day, the leaves are falling, it's cool and it's crisp. And I make eye contact with this curly brown haired girl who was talking to her friends. And I started sweating and she looks at me and I envisioned my entire life with this girl within three seconds. We're gonna date, we're gonna get married and we're gonna have two and one half children. And it, and it turns out that it wasn't a smile, it was a smirk. She cups her hands over her mouth and yells, ugly, ugly. Now I'm not the first kid to have a nasty thing said to him, right? Kids are cruel. This happens. Another kid may have said ugly back. Another kid may have used an expletive, flipped her the bird or whatever, or just shuffed it off. But we're all products of our social and genetic upbringing and family upbringing. And I was a kid who was already shy and withdrawn and and felt ugly. And I'm not blaming this girl. If If it's not one thing, it's another. It's just one of those things I remember. And what I remember thinking at that moment is that and let, uh, my entire life was out of control. I will always be ugly. And so how can I get control of my life to win the affection of this girl or any girl? I decided that to be popular, I would need to get skinny. Like all of the people that I saw who were either muscular, skinny, were going to the prom in high school, had dates, were getting invited to the after-school football games and you know the after-school parties that I wasn't getting invited to. So my path to love and acceptance was going to be to lose weight. And you have to remember, this was before Al Gore invented the internet. That's a joke. So my images were the people I saw every day. We didn't have the internet. And they were all good looking and thin or tan and blonde or whatever. So I started restricting my food intake. And in 1979, at 17, going on 18, just turning 18 years old, I began engaging in anorexic behavior. I wouldn't call it anorexia. It would probably be called back then Ednos, an eating disorder not otherwise specified, although I don't think that's a a diagnosis today. Then I transitioned quickly into bulimia, which was binging and purging. 
and I would go to the public bathrooms in our dorm and I would flush the toilet and I would binge and purge and I would keep flushing the toilet with one hand while I binged and purged. That was how I camouflaged it. And every time I binged and purged, I felt that everything was going to be okay, that I had this feeling of peace in my stomach. But then when that feeling of peace left, this shame swept in, the overpowering shame of engaging in an act that I didn't understand, couldn't define. Bulimia had only been a clinical diagnosis since 1976, and this was 1979, and nobody was talking about eating disorders for men. The uh, wonderful singer Karen Carpenter passed away, and that wouldn't be until 1983, bringing eating disorders into the pre-digital national spotlight. And if you don't know who Karen Carpenter is, go listen to her. She's a wonderful singer on top of the world. So I was engaging in this eating disorder behavior. It had become bulimic, but I didn't know what that was. But I knew that guys didn't stick their fingers down their throat, and that was shameful. But I also knew that every time I did it, I felt okay for a few minutes. And so I kept doing it. And the life of a bulimic. I turned 21 and started hitting the state stores, the liquor stores for people who aren't from Pennsylvania. Before I knew it, and I went, I moved over to main campus, University Park, and I was going to the state store and buying bottles of uh, Jose Cuervo, putting it in my pocket and then going into the alleys behind the first in the alleys back there where all the bars are. I can't remember. You know, you have uh, the Shanigaff and the first and all those bars way back when. Mm-hmm. And I was going and drinking these bottles of tequila alone in these alleys and then going into the bars by myself. I was getting drunk to go into the bars to get drunker because in my mind, that was the only way I was going to be able to socialize and uh, be acceptable to any females. And I was an alcoholic at Penn State. I was going to class drunk. I was going to class tipsy, hungover. I was drinking and I was alone or I didn't have many friends. So I was drinking alone at night. My, my dorm mates and everyone that we weren't, we knew each other from Mount Lebanon, but we weren't really close. They had their friends and I had no one. My four years at Penn State was one of the loneliest times of my life. But let's get this out of the way. I do not look back at Penn State as a positive experience. That's important that you say that. And I'm glad that you are sharing that with us. And that was one of the questions I had was, were you just really good at hiding this? Or did people not say anything to you at Penn oh, State? You have to remember, this is 1980, 1981. Kid, these are kids wrapped up in their own stuff. They may have their own alcohol issues. They're, have, they have a lot of the same fears and consternations I do. Am I going to meet someone? Am I going to graduate? What am I going to do? They're all wrapped up in their own issues. So it becomes really easy just to become one of how, you know, tens of thousands of kids on campus and do your thing. And that's what I did. And I developed exercise bulimia as well, which is obsessive compulsive exercise for the primary purpose of offsetting calories. I was sharing an efficiency with this kid named Greg Dogner, hey, Greg from Pittsburgh, the Beaver Hill apartment. And so I would get up every morning and I'd run 15 or 20 miles. When he was out, I would binge and purge and I would go out by myself and drink come back at night and I'd binge and purge again. Kids don't talk about those things. Brian, digging in a little bit more, we touched in the last few minutes about anorexia, bulimia. I I think there's, especially even in these days, a stereotype of misconception out there that these are eating disorders that predominantly impact young girls or women. Sure. Um, What can we do as a society to better address that misconception? First off, the statistics tell us that about 35, up to 35 to 50% of all those suffering eating disorders are men. And we just have to educate ourselves and not be afraid to ask people how they're doing and reach out. It's a different world today, guys. 
Penn State has a wonderful eating disorder department. Their student services have eating disorder trained professionals. They have body image weeks. They have uh, eating disorder support groups. So it is a different world. When I was at Barrand, oh, we had an infirmary. I would go down to the infirmary and I was obsessively weighing myself three times a day, three times a day. And I remember getting a look at my chart because the nurses would make a chart every time I come in and make a note saying, uh, this guy is obsessively weighing himself and we don't know what to make of it. Back then there was no training in this. There was no training in this. And Penn State does a wonderful job as, as far as I could see in the time I've been there and the resources in doing these things and supporting the students and reaching out to students and who may be struggling. Yeah, I agree in terms of just society, right? Accepting now more mental health and mental health days. And you hear about employers saying it's okay to take a mental wellness day. Yeah. So it's nice to see that we we're seeing and that progress. And certainly there's more and more progress that needs to be absolutely, done. Absolutely. So talking about turning things around, what were the catalysts for you to become sober in your forties? Oh, well, you, yeah, we go have ahead. to go through we have to go through the snapshots and I'll give you the reader's digest. As you said, in my 20s, I was an alcoholic. By the time I was 26, I had uh, developed an addiction to cocaine, substance use disorder. And at 44, I had become suicidal. And my two brothers came into my uh, house here in Dallas and I had a 45 automatic uh, on my nightstand and there was cocaine everywhere and drugs everywhere. And they took me on my first of two trips to a psychiatric hospital, kicking and screaming. They're trying to save my life. And I'm saying, get out of my life. That's how addiction is. I want him to leave me alone with the people who truly didn't judge me, at least until the blow ran out, right? The people I did drugs with. And they had three failed marriages, all failing around drugs and alcohol. And in 2007, I, I met a woman uh, named Amanda, my current, my wife now. She stood by me through all this. We met and we started dating and she moved in with me. And it was Easter weekend, 2007. She went away for the weekend and I went out partying and had a uh, multi-day drug and alcohol use blackout. She came back to the house. She did not know about my issues. I was pretty good, still able to hide it, although not as well. I'm lying in bed and there's cocaine everywhere and there's drugs everywhere. She's looking down at me. She's a lawyer as well. Probably trying to, wondering if she'd walked in the right house. <laughs> and I'm trying to, and I'm, I'm looking up for her. Blah! Thinking what, uh, what day, first, what day is it? And second, how can I explain this? law and order, quote unquote, law and order orgy of evidence that I may not be the person I represented myself to be. All I could think of was a kind of metaphorical run home to mama. I said, take me back to this quote, the name, the psychiatric hospital. She didn't know I'd ever been to one. She didn't know I'd been suicidal. You've been to a psychiatric hospital? Yeah, we'll talk about that later. Just take me back there because I need this time to think of a better lie. So we get down to the psychiatric hospital and this is Easter 2007, we're standing in the parking lot. She's crying. I'm thinking she's going to leave. I'd leave, right? But she didn't. She stood by me. And we dated for over a decade while I rebuilt the broken trust and found recovery. And now we've been married, uh, I don't know, four years. So relationships, not all relationships will survive that, but they can. And I remember thinking about my father in that parking lot. My father, who a uh, veteran of Okinawa, Korea, greatest generation. He was the middle of three boys like me. He would say to my brothers, Mark, Jeff, and I, growing up all the time, he'd say, guys, 
whatever happens in your lives, wherever you go, stay close to your brother. Pick up the phone. Tell your brother you love him. This was the relationship he had with his brother. He and his older brother, Marty, Pittsburgh listeners may dial in with this. They had a, they upholstered cars for the same spot on West Liberty Avenue in Dormont for 40 years, upholstering cars together. So and he understood this. It was like a bad marriage sometime, but he understood the bond. And he was passing down that gift of family that, that was passed down to him, the privilege of that gift, because it is a gift that I'm so close to my family. And I thought in that parking lot that I didn't want to lose my family. And I thought the third thing I thought about was I'd be dead. There wouldn't be a third trip back. And I was, I didn't want to lose my family. And that's really what it was. Why it was then in 2000 and not 2005, I can't tell you. But the thought that I may not have that relationship and I would disappoint my father was just too much for me to bear standing in that parking lot. And that was the moment, what I call the, I don't like rock bottom. That was my recovery tipping point. Easter weekend, 2005, standing in the parking lot, waiting for intake of a psychiatric hospital. And if you want to know how that gift stuck, that gift of family, all these decades later, 1,200 miles, Pittsburgh to Dallas, Mark, Jeff, and I, my two brothers, live walking distance to each other. And until my father passed away, going on two and a half years ago now, he lived across the street from me. And I don't mean metaphorically. And now my mom just moved here and she lives almost across the street from me. That is family. And when I talk to people who are struggling with addiction and alcohol, I realize how much of a gift that truly is because a lot of people don't have that. Uh, All families are dysfunctional in some ways. I mean, mine, everyone. But people have broken families. They're estranged from their siblings. They're estranged from their parents. They've gone through awful things, uh, awful types of abuse. And so I feel fortunate and it was a gift and it was a gift that played a role in literally saving my life. Brian, we we all have tough days, you know, back in when you were struggling with addiction, you, I'm sure you you managed a tough day through substances. Essentially people were going through a different tough time now, the last year or so with the pandemic. And we all define a tough day a little bit differently. So we're curious, how do you handle your tougher days now? I am big on mindfulness huge on mindfulness because mindful eating also had to be a part of my eating disorder recovery. What I do and apologies to the water conservationists, but I go in that shower and I turn that shower on hot and I stand in that shower for a length of time that I probably shouldn't. And (laughs) I just clear the mechanism and I clear the mechanism and I let all of my angst of that day run out. And I remind myself in the shower every day, that I am not my thoughts. Over 50% of the thoughts we have on a daily basis are negative thought or negative and are not based in any kind of fact. It's the world we create, the world we project. So I think it's important, especially as we uh, sit here still in semi-isolation, we're coming out of it, but that has gotten through many tough days uh, sitting in isolation, the mindfulness and, uh, Routine, making sure I had a a healthy routine, exercise routine, and not just sitting around in my pajamas thinking about the next hour passing. I want to switch gears a little bit now to your profession as a lawyer. And lawyers, as you know, have the highest alcoholism rate compared to any other profession, one of the highest suicide rates. 
I'm curious from your perspective, and maybe you've done some research on this as well. Why is this one? And then what's your message for those that want to be lawyers or are preparing to be lawyers today? I have done quite a bit of research on this because this is what I do. I go to law firms and speak about mental health. There are several reasons for it. The legal profession tends to attract a certain kind of person, what we might call a quote unquote type A personality, driven perfectionism. And so that is one thing that can predispose people. And even more than that, law students and lawyers, we are trained from day one, socialized, trained, that being vulnerable is a bad thing. That is hammered into our heads, not so much anymore, but certainly when I was in law school. Vulnerability is important for mental health. Being able to share our trauma, being able to share our pain, be able to talk to someone. And so we view it as a weakness. And because lawyers view it as a weakness, they don't seek help until the consequences catch up to the problem. You know, they've been sued for malpractice. They get a DWI, even more tragic. They wipe out a family on an interstate. So lawyers have a tendency to wait for the consequences to catch up to the problem before they take action because it's just too painful and too uncomfortable to open up to people because that's not what we do. We take advantage of vulnerability. We don't uh, explore it in ourselves. That's one of the big reasons. And, And as far as getting to the law student question, I think you have to, going into law school, and again, I went at a different time. Law schools look at alcohol differently. At Pitt Law, we drank right in the student lounge on weekends. You have to, especially if you're in recovery, you have to have a plan going in. You have to have a mental health plan going in. You're going to study. It's going to be hard. What are you going to do for you? What are the things during the day you're going to do for you? Take those small moments. If you're already in recovery and you're going to law school, have you figured out where the support groups are, like Alcoholics Anonymous or whatever your choice is, or Smart Recovery? Have you figured out who the point people are in your law school in terms of mental health? So you have to do your homework and have a game plan going in. And then a little bit more, Brian, about your professional life. You've done a lot of work with First Amendment rights. You've been pretty vocal when it comes to free speech versus hate speech, especially on social media. Back in 2008, I'm Jewish. I speak out quite a bit about anti-Semitism and especially Holocaust denial. I lost my great aunt, her, her husband, and their two kids in the Holocaust. So in 2008, I confronted Facebook, along with some other people, Uh, about the fact that they allowed Holocaust denial content on their site. This was 2008. And a couple people picked it up. They had bigger audiences than I do. And when those people pick them up, one of them was Mike Arrington and and some other people. And uh, when they picked them up, Facebook took notice. When I said something, they didn't care. But when my viewpoints got picked up, Facebook took notice. And then CNN picked it up. And then all of a sudden, I'm this expert. No, I'm not. I'm just passionate about speaking out about anti-Semitism and Holocaust denial. And so I don't consider myself a free speech expert. I consider myself as someone who's Jewish and passionate about fighting that type of thing. And we certainly appreciate that as well. Where is that line, though, between free speech and, and hate speech on social media? Well, and I, I, to figure out, you know, it's funny. It was uh, six months ago, Facebook announced that they were banning Holocaust denial content. 12 years. Wow. 12 years after I brought it up and some other people. Wow. What was your question? Where where is that line between free speech and hate speech? Hate speech is free. 
hate speech is free speech. <laughs> if, or if hate speech is free speech. So we have to be careful because are we talking about the esoteric term of free speech? Or are we talking about First Amendment protected speech? Two different things. Hate speech is free speech. You have the right to open your mouth and spew. That's different from whether Facebook can uh, set terms of service or Twitter can set terms of service and boot you off for it. That is not First Amendment protected. They're private companies. So the line, I would say, from a free speech perspective, and I'm going to put it in air quotes, the line is where the social media company sets it. Got it. Okay. Well, we're going to get into your Penn State experience shortly. But before we do so, your older brother, Mark, and if you haven't figured out by now, all the listeners, Mark Cuban sold his business to Yahoo for a few billion dollars, owner of the Dallas Mavericks, an investor, a shark on Shark Tank. But yet when Ross and I were thinking and uh, about bringing you on, we actually said Brian's the smarter one because you went to Penn State. Uh, yeah, Mark went to IU. Mark went to Indiana University. So I'm curious. But you know, it's good because we've why? Sort of a, you know, since once Penn State entered the Big Ten, we, we, we could give, you, give each other grief during games. Why did he go to IU, though? Do you know? I don't know. I don't know. Back in, this was in, he, in the 80s. So he graduated Mount Lebanon in 76. I don't know uh, why he chose IU. I think it's because they had a good business school. I, I, I think I recall Mark saying it was because they had a good business school, which they do. Absolutely. Yeah. I tried to get in. I, I, IU, I was such a bad student at, at, at Lebo High. I, uh, I applied to Indiana, and I couldn't even get in as a legacy because my grades were so bad. Hey, we, uh, we'll take your brother. We don't want you. Brian, Jared and I are both big sports fans. And also, I'll give a little shout out to my son, who's eight years old. He's also a big NBA fan. I know you're around Mavs quite a bit here and there. Any good stories to share just from uh, from the basketball I mean, perspective? Back in the day, I mean, if you, if you, you know who Sean Bradley is? He had just had a tragic accident. Yeah, yes, unfortunately. Yes. One of the nicest players I've ever met in my life. And back in the early days when I was showing up, it's funny, Mark told me I couldn't sit on the floor anymore with them. And this is when they were at reunion uh, because I was showing up drunk and coked up all the time. But I, and I always had a different date at the games. And Sean would look over and Sean, he's seven foot again. He would look down, he'd look down. And he, when the girl wasn't looking, he'd put up fingers and rate, and rate them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not proud of that, but that, you wanted a funny story. Uh, let me tell you a funny story. And this kind of, personifies my life and struggling with addiction. It was 2006 and the Mavs are going to the NBA championship for the very first time to play the heat. My 20th year as a practicing lawyer, excuse me. And as you might imagine, I was going to get some pretty good seats for those games. I had a connection, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so I called up Mark and I got a couple of tickets for my friends. Do you think I gave them to my friends? No, I know what, I know what you're both thinking. I sold them on eBay for some astronomical amount thinking like a lawyer I didn't do that either. I traded them to my cocaine dealer for $1,000 in cocaine. Wow. I felt that selling them on eBay was disrespectful to my brother, but trading them to my cocaine dealer was perfectly acceptable, how the mind works in addiction. Mm -hmm. I do. Wow. My dealer shows up at my house. He delivered. I was high class. He gives me this giant Ziploc baggie of cocaine. I hand him the two tickets. I dump it out on my desk looking at this cocaine kingdom. It's all bunched up like a volcano. I wanted to put my nose in it and like I'm Scarface and lean back, Tony Montana, I'm a little friend. I roll up a dollar bill and eh, 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 I line it out. Cocaine users are a funny bunch, especially in pandemic times. We'll wash our hands, put the sanitizer on, 
make sure after we go to the bathroom, we're squeaky clean, but we'll stick a dollar bill up our nose that's been God knows where, used by God knows who, and inhale, which is exactly what I did. But I had also developed a substantial level of cocaine paranoia. And I thought I heard the cops outside. So I put the cocaine back in the Ziploc baggie. I drove to a Home Depot where I bought electrical faceplate outlets, a drill, and a saw. I drove back to my house and I went upstairs to the closets in the bedrooms and I took the drill and the saw and I created these fake electrical outlets in all of these closets. I put the cocaine in smaller Ziploc baggies and put it behind all these fake electrical outlets and then closed them up with the drill, thinking I'm the smartest lawyer ever. Like the DEA, the cops, and the drug dogs have never thought of that before. So I do a little more cocaine, but it had long stopped uh, affecting me the way with the good highs. Now it was just chasing the bad highs, chasing, chasing, chasing. And it was always the next line of cocaine will be the one that's good. And it was, I never had an epiphany that I might have a problem. It was maybe I need to change dealers or maybe I need to switch out the Grey Goose for the Jack Daniels. And the paranoia, again, I take the cocaine and I flush it down the toilet because I got all paranoid. Now it's $900 because I probably did about $100 worth first. The next morning comes, I wake up. Did I flush all that cocaine down the toilet last night? I'm, no, I couldn't have done that. No, who does that? What idiot does that? Flushes almost $1,000 worth of cocaine. When I finally came to terms with the fact that I had flushed it down the toilet and realized that there was another game that night, I called Mark again. I got two more tickets, another call to my dealer. He shows up at my house. He said, dude, you did all that last night? I didn't want to tell him that I flushed it down the toilet like a moron. I said, yes, I did it all. I am the cocaine anteater of Dallas. Give me more. Okay. So he gives it to me. I go back up to my home office, dump it out on the desk, rinse, wash, repeat. I get all paranoid again. I hide it behind the fake electrical outlets, take it back out, walk to the toilet again, drop to my knees like I had done so many times, hoping, praying, wishing someone would take away the pain of my addiction and my shame. And I flushed it down the toilet again. They say when Dallas flushes, it flushes, it ends up in Houston. So I think some people uh, in Houston had a little kick in their step that night. The insanity of addiction, doing the same thing over the same way and expecting a different result. Wow. That's probably my craziest drug story. And did Mark know, like, when you weren't showing up to the games, like, what's going on? And, and Mark, Mark suspected over time that I had a problem. And I wasn't showing up for work. I went to work for Mark because I lost all my clients. No, I haven't been disbarred, guys. And. My license has been never been suspended, but it wasn't for a lack of trying. And I say that tongue in cheek, but it's a very real issue when lawyers are struggling with drugs uh, and alcohol. But uh, Mark put me to work for him. It was at the time they were still building the American Airlines Center where they play now. And Mark has a half interest. So I was sitting in this construction trailer. Mark said, you'll be my point guy for this. I didn't have any construction experience. He was just trying to give me something to do and trying to give me the opportunity to pull myself up by the bootstraps, which isn't how addiction works either. But I was sitting in these meetings with Tom Hicks and the mayor coked up, hung over, and I smelled. So Mark had to pull me out of that. Let's talk about privilege, because I think I would be disingenuous. We People say, Mark's doing this for you and that for you. Yes. I went through addiction, and I recovered with substantial privilege, financial privilege, skin color privilege, multiple layers of privilege that the vast majority of people struggling do not enjoy, whether it's demographic, underprivileged, 
through skin color or whatever, or uh, sexual orientation. I had the privilege, but I didn't take advantage of it. It would be intellectually dishonest not to acknowledge that. Yeah, very powerful. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that as well. If it's okay with you, we're actually going to transition into a segment that we call the Lion's Den, which is all about your time at Penn State. Yeah, that I know. was a bar, right? That was a bar. <laughs> Absolutely. That was a bar. That's it was. true. Yes. So, Brian, you've told us um, all about the extremes of your per- personal and professional journey. When you look back on it all, what do you take away from your time at Penn State? Oh, that's a great, you're the first person ever asked me that. As I look back, it was not a good experience. And I, that doesn't make me unique. I've talked to people who were miserable there. That's not Penn State's fault. I did learn a lot about myself. And I did, I got an education. I learned a lot. I learned a lot about myself. And I learned, it's funny because you, you might think about this as a negative, but I learned what it's like to be alone. Literally alone in my own thoughts, in my own head. Because I don't remember having one friend. I had people I talked to. I had my dorm mates, but they had their own. I don't remember being part of one group or one friend, and that's not their fault. So I take from it that I understood what loneliness is. And I don't think that's, and I could parse that as a bad thing, but that experience has helped me shape who I am today. Without going through that at Penn State, I would not be the person I am today. I don't look back at re- and go through revisionist recovery if I had only done this or that. No. My four years at Penn State got me here talking to you guys about this. My four years at Penn State puts me in front of audiences and has me exchanging emails with people who are struggling or texts. That four years gave me the pain and the helped me build the resilience I needed to be the Brian who sits here uh, talking to you guys. Thanks for coming on tonight. Quite honestly, we haven't had a guest like you on before. A lot of times we talk about all these positive Penn State happy memories, but you gave a, a true real experience here. Yeah, and, and I don't want people to think it's sour grapes. They asked me to come back, and I went back and, and did it on my own nickel to speak. It was important for me for students to, to understand that it's okay to seek help, and it's okay to speak out because I understand what they went through. Even as a baby boomer. I know what it's like to be an 18-year-old feeling uh, lonely, feeling with an eating disorder or body image issues, because whether it's 2020 or 1979, feeling lonely is feeling lonely. An eating disorder is an eating disorder, although there are resources differently. Shame is shame, not wanting to talk to people about it. And I get it. And I, they, I want them to know that I get it. Yeah, thank you. And and there's so many things I think that we learned. Just being vulnerable is more than okay. It's good. Let's embrace it. Let's share these things with other people. And also then, you know, what you said around the appreciation of family. Sure. And, and even in and- college, it's important to create compassionate community. Okay. Find the people who you can talk to, reach out to them when you think they're struggling and make sure they know uh, that you'd like and they know that they should reach out to you. Yeah, thank you. I mean, this is this has been one of probably the most important conversations that we've had thus far. We've had a lot of great conversations, but this one's important because there are so many great lessons learned from your journey. And thank you for sharing it with us. We certainly wish you continued success, continued years of, of being sober. And we will 
continue to actually root for the Mavs, not because of Mark, but because of actually you <laughs> oh, and your affiliation yeah. with yeah, the Mavs. Yeah. Because just remember, you're the smarter of, of, oh, of, of the oh, brothers. But, uh, but, um, thank you very much. And we always end with, we are. Penn State. Lion Legacy is a Baruder production. If you enjoyed this Labor of Love podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it if you would subscribe and write us a review on your favorite podcast platform.